You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Welcome to the show. I'm on my honeymoon at the moment, but as soon as I get back at the beginning of February, I go on tour with my award-winning stand-up show, Like I Mean It. All the tour details are at comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour, and I will remind you of all the dates later in the show. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. So welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and welcome to this very special episode with James Acaster making a return appearance on the show. Uh, This is a two-hour two-parter. So you've got an hour and ten here, I think. You've got an hour coming out in the next few days. And then for the super hyper nerds among you, uh, there's a further 45 minutes of extra material available for the mailing list. For those of you that don't know him, James is a record-holding Edinburgh Comedy Award nominee, the only person to be nominated for Best Show at the Edinburgh Festival, a staggering five years running. Uh, He's just about to release four totally different and interlinked shows on Netflix any day now. And he's also one of the funniest comic voices of his generation. In the first hour here, we're going to talk about his Netflix special, uh, specials, his book of classic scrapes, which is available now and genuinely excellent. Uh, and we'll talk about what point in the writing of his very densely layered comedy shows he realises what they're actually all about. So that is all I need to tell you at this stage. This hour is coming right up. We've got another hour coming out soon and then 45 minutes of extras for the absolute obsessives among you. Here's James Acaster. Let's just tease the Netflix special because <laughs> that's that's like a, a UK first, right? Is that a is that a world first? As far as I know, it's a world first. Tell yeah. us what you're doing on Netflix. Um, four, so yeah, it's four specials um, that link together. So yeah, it's like a mini series. But do, you, like, do you have a release date? No, so they're they're very laid back, which is great. <laughs> okay, uh, and very refreshing to uh, work with. But like um, the first quarter is what they say, which is January to April. Okay, so like at some point they'll just that, drop it yeah. because they can just drop things. Yeah, they're so um, Turtle Canyon, who have been the ones who you know, like filmed it and uh, editing it and stuff like that, uh, have been really uh, prompt with everything. Just got everything done to deadline. So probably be sooner rather than later. Um, but yeah, it's exciting. And that will presumably become a, like you must have been thinking about the, the sort of the, the cultural ramifications of it in terms of the world of stand up because no one's done that before. That is, that's a big hello to the global, uh, Netflix viewing public. Yeah. It's weird. Cause like you get, so I was probably, I think that the, the further down the road I get with anything, the less I think about that sort of thing. So, almost at the very start of that journey when you're thinking about doing it that's when you're like this is going to change everything <laughs> uh, because it's just like it's in your head and it's just these uh, it's like um, it's endless possibilities of what could happen and the more you be- it becomes a reality and you know you, you start booking the venue and then you start doing the, the tour so you're relearning all the shows and then you start filming the shows and then you're editing it you just it becomes so normal to you that you think oh I hope people like it so it doesn't even feel like you just hope that 
people yeah like it and don't go oh, i've heard all this material before this is rubbish and like you start thinking like that but um i don't know i think i think i'm happy with it which is you know quite rare for for me to be to be like i'm really proud of this and i really like it so usually that means i'm yeah whatever else happens will be a nice little bonus but yeah, I don't really know. It's hard to look at it from other people's points of view, I guess. Is there is there an element... Now, I know you've done some work in America and you've got a US agent, mm-hmm. um, which always sounds weird because it contains the words USA. But uh, <laughs> who's got a joke about putting the USA in... No, putting the sofa in United States off America. <laughs> the Simpsons. Um, you've done a bit of work in the US. Is This is presumably for global release, for release yeah. in the US as well as the UK. Um how could can you foresee any problems with like the Englishness of what you do yeah. or the Britishness of what you do? Quite a lot. So like I, I think my accent is a problem and the way I speak. Like when I I did one American TV show and the main feedback I got was people can't understand your voice. Oh shit! So, so <laughs> okay, because like, okay. it's a very lazy accent. Like I and you know, I'm mispronounce things and like go do like soft R's and stuff like that and. So, like, that's a difficult thing. And also, there's a lot of British references in it. And I think there's the general sense of humour as well is quite is quite a British thing. And when I go over there and do gigs, there are some jokes that just don't work as well there. And some jokes that weirdly work better. But, like, on, you know... What kind of... Uh... Well, the I found that the Dr Pepper one, when I had a routine about Dr Pepper, and they really loved that. <laughs> and, like, it was, yeah... And, and then you get used to it being this, like, routine that... It's like, that's my banker. And then you go home and go, oh, no, this is almost quite a mid, you know, like a middling response to it here. Um, so weirdly, they, they liked that because I guess maybe Dr. Pepper is... I know we all know what it is here, but maybe they drink it more. From the, I, don't, I don't know. It's been, or they've been aware of it for longer. Yeah, it's almost like over here, it's a kind of niche, quirky thing to refer to Dr. Pepper. But maybe yeah. over there, it's like, oh, now he's doing a mainstream joke that we yeah, can understand. Yeah. yeah, it might be that. Um but then, yeah, any kind of routines there where I'm, like, being down on myself or, you know, self-deprecating or if I'm uh, or if I'm being, like, mean about something or someone, they kind of, like, yeah, they're a bit, they don't mean go for those ones over there. So um, I don't know if they'll translate very well on the... Because a lot of it is, you know, me pretending to be more arrogant than I am and, uh, you know, hoping that people realise that the, the persona, the, the person on stage is an idiot who thinks he's great, but I don't know. <laughs> it's really interesting. I, I wanted to talk to you. We'll, we'll get onto your use of language and the way you like... You, there's particular quirks of yours uh, linguistically, like calling people punks and saying, man, alive and stuff. You sure. know what I mean? There's certain things like that, some of which are quite American in that sort of faux-American, obviously it's ridiculous that I'm saying this mm. kind of a way. And it, and those are those are often... The those are some of the most notable ways in which we see your influence, shall we say, in a new generation of stand-up comics. Okay. <laughs> but we will come back to that. Um, I I wonder whether they will get that you don't really say or that we don't really say punks in the UK. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? Oh yeah, stuff like that. I hadn't even thought of that. There's yeah. sort of le- there's yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah, levels exactly. of richness to what you do yeah. that can be interpreted, I would guess, wildly differently. Yeah. Yeah, they might. I think maybe when I've done gigs over there, there's every chance that they might think I'm almost adapting it for them. So they might still think it sounds weird coming from an English person, but they might think, oh, he's trying to 
speak like we do because he thinks that yeah he's changing the material. He's trying to fit in by yeah, saying like, punks yeah, as like, if we all say that. He's, he's a real piece of work. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's changing that line because he thinks that's what we will, you know, he's not saying wanker like, like he would in, in Britain. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the, I think there's probably an element of that as well. Why do you think, I mean, assuming it is a, a risk, I was going to say, why, why, do, why do you think Netflix have taken such a big risk on you? But I guess mm. I don't know the vagaries of how that industry works. I think that's part of the, the yeah. excitement is like, who have, have they got money? Are, are Netflix massively in debt? They've yeah. got this huge market share, but is it? Does it? How can it make yeah. as much money as they seem to be spending? Um, so I don't know. But let's assume it is a, a risk. Sure. It, certainly, in terms of like them, or maybe it's maybe it's less of a risk because no one knows which of their most popular shows or not. It's sort of impossible yeah. to tell, isn't it? But it is. It's a big leap to suddenly go. Here's someone who hasn't. I mean, you've been on Netflix via the BBC. Mm. But here's someone who doesn't have an established profile. You're not Burr. You're not doing arenas. Um, for them to go, yeah, sure, have have four shows. Yeah. Um, well, there's, I guess, a lot of work went into it. Like my agents, uh, both my agent at the time uh, in, in in Britain and also my American agents, you know, did a lot of work, uh, a lot of meetings and stuff like that. I went in for a meeting there too. Um, and... One, they just seem a lot more laid back than like it's. When I watched all their Netflix originals, I, I was I was always thinking that oh, Netflix just seems like this utopia. They just let you do whatever you like, and then think, and then knowing that that's probably not true, and then you sit and talk to them and go, "Oh no, it seems pretty like this is pretty much what they do." And um, I heard about like Scorsese had like a whole project in with them, and then just. They, they they put loads of money into it already, and then he just was like, "No, nah, I don't want to do it anymore." And then they lost so much money on that, but they could afford afford to almost. It's like, yeah, it's fine. And so with my thing, they're paying for one. We've found a way of filming four specials that was for the budget of one special. Yes, because you so, are able to carry all of those specials in your head and yeah. knock them out over a weekend. Yeah, so, <laughs> which is which is let's just. Pause for a moment to admire the incredible discipline and focus that that requires, because that isn't something anyone else has ever done. I think was it Richard Herring did a bunch, didn't he? Oh, of course he did. Of yeah, he yeah. Did. Yes. So like, but he did. What, so what did he do? Did he do like twelve? Was it twelve shows over, over twelve nights? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it, 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 I think he was doing multiple shows on one day, but maybe he was. But uh, yeah, he kind of relearned all these old ones. Yeah, and did them and. Um, I guess, yeah, so I, I kind of did the tour. Kind of, for half the year, it was just touring these shows. And, and doing them on alternate nights. Yeah. Doing the three shows on alternate nights as you yes. as you then wrote the fourth, which was a kind of connective show between, between yeah. the Yeah, so the fourth one was like even older material, but with a new narrative to link all the other three together. I really enjoyed hearing the older material. And I say hearing as you yeah. I've got a copy of the, the audio for you. Um, I really enjoyed hearing the older material with the verve of current Acaster. Mm. Do you know what I mean? The difference in like I, I was I was having this brilliant nostalgic experience of like the bread stuff, <laughs> the stuff about bread, you know. But actually, said through the through the vehicle of you being the comic you are now. Yeah, I enjoyed performing it a lot more for that reason. Like I know who I am a bit more now. Um, also, you know, a bit more secure with not fully knowing who I am. Yeah, so like, <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. So, like, you know, and 
and so like it was way more fun to do those routines now that I feel more comfortable on stage and uh yeah not as I think back then you know I was a lot more insecure about you know how things were getting received and whatever so it was really that was a really fun show to do this year to kind of like do a bunch of old stuff and kind of also do it to an audience because you know when I originally toured those shows that those that those routines were in I was playing to like you know 20 people or whatever and they were pretty silent uh and you know there were shows that I was proud of and yet I was kind of um quite heartbroken each night going oh that's all that I put a lot into that show and it kind of got nothing again yeah. and you know no one showed up so it was really nice to kind of go out and do it this year and also realise like that bread routine is probably one of the most mainstream things I've ever written <laughs> and, it, yeah, I, yeah. and it's, it's really fun to do that in front of a big audience and like you know feel it you know hum along a bit more and rather than kind of like back in the day it was like yeah I thought I was like I think this is accessible but they're treating me like <laughs> you know it's not so it's nice to kind of like have an audience get it and um and do that but like yeah so it was I was talking all three and then I ended up doing the fourth one on the third night I did two halves and do two shows on the tour because I had to like yeah kind of get that one up to speak so there were bits in it like the narrative of it which were brand new and I had to learn those and I had to like put in once I'd learned it all as well the show was kind of like uh what 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 was the way it showed itself up was that it didn't really have a strong beginning or ending like the other three shows had a at least a clear beginning and a clear ending that like that's you know even if it's not the, the they're rarely the funniest bits or, the, or even the strongest bits but it's like that feels like a beginning and that yeah, feels like I an mean, end yeah I mean the Torville and Dean beginning where you begin yeah. kneeling uh, the the uh, Everybody, this being the perfect audience, like it's yeah. you guys. What was the what was the beginning of the uh, represent? Actually, got a stronger beginning on the tour, so I, I, I moved. Was I, that the die dice? So that used to begin with that, yeah. You, okay. well, you used to begin with Chilean miners and, and yeah. celebrity gossip about the Chilean miners, and then <laughs> um, uh, when I was touring it this year, there was a bit because there's this whole kind of section in the kind of middle of the show where I just put three quite abstract routines back to back, and it would kill the momentum of the show and make it quite difficult for me so I took the middle one of those routines and put it at the start okay. and did it and because it's all about what happens before um, what came before the big bang and it's all about that and so I put that at the beginning and did it off stage during a blackout so that okay. it, it felt like a beginning so again it's a, it's yeah. a chunky yeah. this is definitely this is unquestionably the beginning of a show yeah, yeah. so it was basically the routine didn't get any funnier necessarily it just uh, but it just felt like a beginning so it kind of, that was okay. So it's like, this is the beginning and I'm not now sucking the momentum out of the show halfway through with this routine that, you know, it's following a made, it's a made up fable, which if people don't get on board of it, it's really difficult. And then I'd follow that with this routine about what came before the big bang. And it was just very, <laughs> it made things very, very hard for me. Do, do you think it, do you think it made things hard because your audience is becoming bigger and therefore necessarily more mainstream so you are afforded less time like the the fable the goose and the sloth mm. bit that's such a great bit it's really alt do you know what i mean it's it's the opposite of a mainstream bit mm-hmm. do you think that as your audience is expanding as people are coming to see you because they've seen you on the apollo or mock the week or or, or those kind of shows do you do you feel that the audience need do you feel that there's there's a kind of a parallel track whereby you're making decisions on structure 
which are informed by the audience having changed? Mm. Uh, no, because actually it's easier now. What a shame. Such, so, a, such a well-phrased question. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. <laughs> um, I, I, that routine's always been hard. So that routine was hard when I was doing it in Edinburgh. Okay. Uh, and it, and it, it would either go well or it would... It would either be the best part of the show or the worst part of the show in terms of response. And um, actually, on this tour, tour this year, it would go well, you know, 90% of the time. And then the 10% when it didn't go well, it would go so badly that it was hilarious. There was a... <laughs> in Peterborough. Because there's always a bit at the start when I, I always go into it by saying... I'm talking about a character who's really judgmental. I say it's like he's never heard the fable of the goose and the sloth. And then I leave a pause <laughs> and then look at them like they're idiots for not... like Or look at them like I'm confused that they don't know what I'm talking about. And then I go into the fable. But sometimes in that pause, someone will almost take the bait and go, what are you talking about? <laughs> what, what's that? And when they do that, you can have a bit more fun with it okay. and, and go... What, you never heard the fable of the... What are you talking... And, 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 like, you can't believe that they don't know it. In Peterborough, <laughs> this guy goes, what? I was like, he's like what, what's that? I, was, I said, you've got to have heard that fable, sir. Everyone's heard that fable. He went, listen, mate. Like, he, had, <laughs> he, he had enough at this point. Yeah. He went, you're talking about things like everyone knows what you're talking about, but not everyone knows what you're talking about. And I, and I said, it's a very well-known fable. And a woman, a woman in front of him turned around and went... Don't worry, I, I've never heard of this fable. <laughs> and I went, you've never heard of it? What are they teaching in the schools in Peterborough? And then the lady at the front row went, right, who went and heard of it and put her hand oh up? Oh, my God! And then about 20 of them put their hand up. Uh, it was like, yeah, we haven't heard of this. Um, so when, it, when it's gone badly recently, it's, I've enjoyed it so much because they've, they've got a lot... I'd say that a mainstream audience has a lot more confidence. When they're wrong, they still think... That they assume they're right. So I like that. They think he's doing it wrong. He doesn't know what he's doing. But um, a lot of them now, they come because I'm the weird guy on those shows. Not, not, you know, it's not like I'm like an absolute whack job, but like, I, you know, I'm, compared to, you know, if I'm sitting next to, I don't know, if, if, I, often I am sitting next to Hugh, Hugh yeah. Dennis, who I, who I uh, really like, uh, and I think he's really funny, uh, but we're still really different comics, so I sure. look very weird compared to him. And so they're coming to see... The, the weird guys. So I, the, then those, if they're coming because of that show, because of you know watching me on TV, then they are expecting that a bit more anyway. So actually, those routines are easier now. Um, it was just that that particular routine, it always like that. You know, in terms of moving the big band routine to the beginning, it, it was always a problem in Edinburgh. It would always set the momentum up the show in front of you know Edinburgh audiences. And I've never changed it. I didn't change it on tour when I was playing to, you know, more kind of like uh, comedy savvy audiences. I still didn't change it, even though it was not working. Why not? Because I, uh, I thought that, I think in Edinburgh, I wouldn't change it because I was too scared to make a big change during the festival. Because if, if it didn't work, then what if that's the night where, you know... Uh, so a big reviewers in, and then they just write this show is absolute garbage. And I was still scared of that at the time, um, uh, and uh, so I do what my kind of the safest bet, you know, version of the show was each night. Uh, and then on tour, I kind of wouldn't change it because I was like, no, this this worked in Edinburgh, so they're wrong if it's not, you know. And then the following tour and the following Edinburgh completely changed those approaches. So in Edinburgh, I was still changing the show. And enjoy it because I, I realised I had a big realisation that I enjoy comedy when I'm improving 
and I don't enjoy it when I just try and go, I, I deserve this, or, well, you know, this is finished, this is great, and why aren't you laughing? Um, and I enjoy it a lot more when I, when I actually do ask myself why are they laughing and figure it out and get under the hood and fix it. Um, whereas back then, yeah, I was kind of a bit scared of that maybe. So like, yeah, the next Edinburgh, I changed it while I was touring, well, I was doing Edinburgh, and then I changed it while I was touring as well. And then this tour this year, doing all four shows, I was doing lots of that and doing lots of like, right, this has always been a problem and you never sorted it out. So you're sorting it out now. And that's the whole point of doing this tour. And all the, also, having the focus of the film, the recordings coming up made that a lot easier because I was like, this isn't the final thing. This is me preparing. This is a work in progress, even though these are shows that I've done in Edinburgh, I've toured them, they're technically finished, but like, they're not finished until I've filmed them. That's the final product. And so I'm still changing, you know, it's like, change it now, because all that matters is that you get it right on the day when you film them. So these gigs don't look at them as though they, they matter as much. That's a really nice... That, that, that idea, I think, could be extracted to if all comics had to do all of their material one final time before they died, then you could sure. more easily regard your entire oeuvre as a work in progress. Probably mm. we'd all feel a bit less shit about yeah. a Club 20 at Christmas. Yeah, we think I'm constantly tinkering. It gives yeah. you a, a. It would constantly remind you it's all a work in progress, and I can't sit back into it. Absolutely, and that, that's been the thing, the, the mantra this year is that it's always a work in progress. It's never finished, um, and that improving it is fun, and you like that. So don't shy away from it, or yeah, you because know, every time I kind of leave it, and I, I feel worse and more insecure about it. I realise that that's when I, whenever I respond badly to any criticism, is because I know they're right. Because I know, or not because I know they're right, because I know that I haven't put as much work into it as I could. And so, there's a part of me anyway that thought, no, it's not, it's not great. And so, it's, they don't even have to like mention the thing that I know is wrong about it. Even if, if they just like say, oh, yeah, the show, I don't like the show, and they, their criticisms could even be about things that I'm completely secure in. But I know, I really know why the show's not good. It's because that routine should have moved to the, <laughs> the beginning okay. or whatever. So, like, as long as I know I'm happy with it and I've done everything I can, then I'm fine and I don't, I don't care about their criticisms and it's okay. And so realising that it was more... It's not actually about necessarily caring what they think, but caring what I think and knowing that I, I'm not 100% happy with it and they're kind of just echoing my... Inner, inner insecurities about yeah this isn't finished yet or this isn't that great so how does that how does that sit with the idea that it'll never be finished it's always a work in progress because yeah. you and, and I should say I think you've got someone there, there was a listener question which I shall attempt to credit later about you being often referred to as the hardest working man in comedy now that's, you've certainly been called that on this show by me and other people and I'm sure other people think that of you as well you must have a, a do you have an understanding that you have a pretty good work rate? Um, yeah, I think so. But then also, there are days... Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. But there, there are days where I feel like I don't. And I think a lot of the time, that's the reason why you do. Because sure. like you just literally have one day where you let yourself just veg around. And you're like... And I, I literally on those days feel like... I think to myself, oh, you're not doing anything, man. You're so lazy. But but not just today, but like all the I think I've been lazy for ages. Where it's like you know I could have just come off a week where I've been touring every single night and getting other stuff done in the day, and then I give myself one down day and I can get like, oh you you've really got to pick yourself up. I, I had a day recently where I just watched loads of you know Netflix and YouTube, 
and I was watching uh, Kevin Hart eat some spicy chicken wings while he gets interviewed. And uh, he was saying that he gets up at 5am and work, does, does a workout every day and how important that is to him. And I, I was just like, I'm a piece of shit. Like I just, immediately I was like, why am I not doing it? Why am I not getting up and exercising and then doing a full day's work like Kevin Hart does? Even though he's not even like he's someone that I think is funny on those shows. It's not like he's, a, he's an idol of mine or a hit, but well, I've got to be more like that. And so does, I get a lot of guilt about stuff like that. Does that feel healthy? Uh, <laughs> probably not. No, I don't think it is. I, I still give myself, I still let myself, you know, relax and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's the most. It's not. No, it's not. Not the healthiest thing in the world. I've got better at it this year. I've got better at like letting myself off the hook a bit more and not feeling guilty about stuff when I shouldn't. There but, is a there is a weird relationship I think between people who are very successful. Because in part because they work really hard, and the sticks with which they beat themselves to make them work really hard, that seems like is there a do you do you imagine there is a healthy midpoint of being able to be a high achieving, financially successful, industrially successful, creatively successful act, and a happy person? There must be. I mean, some people you meet, and like you think they are and you're probably wrong but you you definitely like I um, bumped into Ben Smith this week and who's Doc Brown and, and and he just he always seems completely together I always see him and go oh why can't I be like him <laughs> okay he's so together he's really he's always got clean trainers <laughs> yeah yeah like he just he's just a really nice guy he seems happy uh and like you know obviously I don't know anything about Ben's life you know, it's, but but like yeah, you do meet people where you think yeah they they've got it and they seem secure themselves and they you know they turn out really uh, really great work all the time and like uh, so there must be like a way of a way of doing it but then you know you're always looking at other people and assuming the grass is greener and they must be fine whereas like why would they come up to you and go James I'm so so stressed because <laughs> like they don't know me well enough so um, yeah I, I I try I guess I try and not assume that other people are doing better a lot of the time but then you meet people like him and in the moment you're like I think he's doing I think he's just really got it sussed but then I will talk myself down and go away and go nah Ben's probably miserable (laughs) (laughs) but he's even even worse than you are um and try to like be a bit more realistic about it but um do you think that there is an amount of work or an amount of success which will be enough um, no, because it's never been about that. So it's not, it depends how you regard success, really. So, like, I, for me, uh, success is just, just doing a project that I'm proud of. And I've found recently, especially, like, this year, like, it's important to me to have a, like, a solid thing that I can hold up and go, there, there it is. Like, when I was in a band or in a lot of bands before I did comedy, but, like, when I was in the main one, all I wanted to do was record an album. And I wasn't wanting to perform live and stuff like that. I just wanted to do an album and have that and go, yeah, we did it. And we did that at the end of that band, and we didn't put it out, we didn't release it, and it was enough for us. And that's... I felt successful because I had this album that I really loved, that I'd made, and it was what was in my head, and I'd made it a reality, and that was the success, even though... We never made any money from being in the band. We weren't signed. We didn't have any fans. You know, it was like, that was enough for me. 
And with stand-up, I definitely feel like, you know, success is writing a book that I'm proud of. And I don't even know... People that keep asking me, people... It's just, it's just a, like a common question. But they'll, they'll say, you know, how, how's it selling? I have no, I have no idea. Like, I don't know how many I've sold. I just, you know, all that was important to me was that when I sent it off, I was proud of it. And just don't feel like people are going to waste their time reading it. Um, what I really like is when people say, oh, I read it on holiday or something like that. And I, and I realise I like that because that's how I, you know, that's how I would read a book or something. And so it reminds me of when I went on holiday and, you know, read that other book and go, oh, cool, now I'm back to somebody else. But I don't know if it's like a huge success or loads of people are reading it or anything like that. And like with these specials, it's just going to be, you know, if I can make something that I'm really proud of, then that's enough and it will go out there and, you know, I'll never know how many people have watched it because Netflix doesn't work like that anyway. You don't get told your figures. And the you star know. rating is only reflective of how much they think you will like it based on their algorithm. Yeah. It's not it's all, a totting up of... Yeah, so it's not even that anymore, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and That's kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, And also, like... What, uh, what star rating do you think Netflix will give you of your own work oh, based on yeah, their yeah. algorithm of what you <laughs> yeah. watch? That would Can't be such wait. a shame to go, two, we're not sure if you'll go for this, James. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the worst. If, if the internet starts recommending your own stuff, do you go, I'll Google myself too much. Wow, that is uh, famous person problems. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah. So that's kind of. I think that level of success is enough. So I always feel like, you know, with the book, I go. That's and I, I, I know it's like enough as in because there's two different ways of approaching that. I guess and like if it's like enough as in you can go. I've done it. I've achieved everything I wanted to. Then that's that's different. So that's. Uh, I guess when I've got no more projects that I want to do, I guess that'll be when it's like, oh, it's enough now. It's like, you know, REM were like that. They just said like, you know, as soon as we don't want to do it anymore, we're going to stop doing it. And so they just made albums while they wanted to make albums and while they felt like, you know, driven and enthusiastic about it. And then as soon as that went away, they went, now that's enough. Rather than we were sold out that stadium or whatever it was. And so like, yeah, I feel like once I've, got to the point where I don't want to get up and do anything anymore, uh, then that'll be enough. And I imagine it will have to be after a project that I'm proud of. Because when you do something you're not proud of, you, if anything, you get spurred on more to do something else. Um, yeah, I think I think that's kind of, in terms of success, that's, that's how I define it. And I, it. Yeah, I feel like your relationship to success at comedy is a little bit like someone who is in a Star Wars film and doesn't care about Star Wars. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's that, it's, do you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like, you get to do an interesting job, and everyone's really excited about it, and wants to kind of find out about it, and you're just like, oh, just, they're nice people, I turn up and do the job. Do you know what I mean? In, in a way that probably infuriates a lot of other people. Like, I can't imagine many other people with a book out at Christmas aren't constantly checking the... Mm. The charts, I assume that's a thing you can do. Yeah, it? I don't even it... know where you'd go to look at it. Really. I, I, it's that's so like, nice to but hear. Like, but like, it's. Uh, but I would be looking at it if I wasn't happy with the book. Yeah. So if I wasn't happy with the book, I would be checking it all the time because that's how I'd get my reassurance that it was good. So like, you know, I've done that before with like, you know, if I have a bad gig, um, I'll, I'll more likely to search myself on Twitter or you know look on Twitter and see what people are saying because. I need reassurance. So if people saying it was good, 
But even then, it doesn't. I still know it was bad. I still know that I didn't do very well and that I didn't do as well as I could have done. And it's yeah. not like those those tweets that saying they enjoyed it actually make me feel any different. I don't go, oh, I was wrong. It was great. I still, but it's just this impulsive thing that I still do because I'm after that. You know, if I'm if a TV show goes out that I know wasn't particularly good on, I'm more likely to search myself. But like, um, yeah, if I'm happy with something. Uh, yeah, I don't. So yeah, if I, if I wasn't happy with the book, I could I'll be able to tell you right now, you know, to to the copy how many I'd sold mm. and like how it was doing on the charts and everything. Um, and that's not me. Also, that's not me saying like, if someone asked me, "Is your book good?" I wouldn't say yes. I, I'd say I'm really happy with it and I liked it. Sure. But like, I wouldn't. This it's not me saying like I've written a great book. You know, I've, I've written a book that I would want to read, which is uh, all I can do. I think because I can't. I can't second guess what other people are going to like or think, you know. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am I love the book and I, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm listening to it on audiobook and I really wanted to make a point of saying I've heard a lot of comedians' books on audiobook and you perform yours so well. Oh, because I, so. Yeah, I can hear you enjoying it and recounting it. It's a piece of storytelling and you're telling the stories well. And I'm always amazed when it's happened a few times when I listen to a comedian's autobiography say, and they're just reading it as if it's a story that they have to read, yeah. as if it's a, a you know, like an RP performance of a thing. Whereas yours, it feels like you're in the room, the material is brilliant. The, the, I, I, I would guess the I know the background of the story. Just for, for those that don't know, it's uh, yeah. you, you could describe. They're it all the, the, the true stories uh, from my life about misfortune and mishaps or times I've messed up. And you, it, it's had its genesis in your appearances on Josh Widdicombe's radio yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. And you would go in and recount the latest scrape that yeah. you got into. So I do one a week, and Josh and the guests would grill me on why I'd chosen to make all of the decisions, and, and they're all happened. true. They're all true. Yeah, that was a. When I started out in stand-up, everything had to be true. I remember I talked, us talking about, about this at one. the time, yeah. So it's all those stories that I used to tell that never ended up in any shows. I just started using them on Josh's show. And because also, because the, the, loads of people will always say, like, you know, surely you're making them up. Or, but like, or, or you've, you know, you've exaggerated things or whatever. But you can't afford to when you're on a radio show and you're being grilled about it. Because literally, it's like, you know, if you are on Would I Lie To You, so you, you chuck a fake detail in there if that's the thing they pick up on and they ask you about it you can't just decide I had to just be completely honest with everything um, and it was really it was fun because all, all my stand up these days is you know fabricated and you know uh, ridiculous and being an undercover cop or whatever and so it was really fun to go on Josh's show while I was doing that kind of stand up and just tell true stories every week and they obviously they're true are they structurally true or have you, like, specifically the one I'm thinking of is an early story in the book about yeah. the towel. It might be the yes. first story. Yeah. At the end of the story, yeah. the kid say, I mean, I don't want to yeah. give away the end. Okay, okay, so yeah. you, you ask another kid who you forget to take your towel to school. I'll let James yeah. explain that in the book, which I highly recommend you all get. Um, but uh, you, uh, he's, you say, you didn't bring your towel. You've got to wipe your hands. You, as a very young child, say to your friend, who's the person you hate most? They say Siobhan, you wipe it on their coat, you get in trouble, and then you get grasped up by your friend. And the story ends with you saying to him, I thought you said that she was your least favourite person, and he said, second least favourite. Yeah. And that is so beautifully resolved. 
Is there an element of that whereby you kind of shuffled or adjusted the order in which it played out? Right. The words that were said? How yeah. good is your memory in terms of the specific words that were yeah. said compared to what would be the best, uh, most lean way of yeah. telling the joke? Yeah, so that one, the structure is the same. It all happened in that order. But I was five. I don't remember the words he said. I remember it was absolutely words to that effect. that He, you know, he probably, as a five-year-old, uh, you know, said... Well, I actually hate you more than I hate Siobhan. Gotcha. Yeah, or okay. something like that. Sure. And then, like, that was probably what he said to me. But uh, obviously, yeah, for writing the story, you're like, you want to, because also with stuff like that, you want to get across how it made you feel. Yeah, 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 yeah. And how it made me feel is is that sentence, you know, because like, that's basically, he would, also, he was a very, what I remember about him is that he was just quite a, in my head now, he was like, he was like a child genius, like, he was very clever. <laughs> and was always wearing a suit in my memory. And I, and I, you know, there's no way he was. But um, you know, just a very smart kid who was a lot cleverer than me, and would and would have that kind of vocabulary to hand. So like, it also just gets across who he was a bit more, and like the kind of kid he was. But that's, I'd say, that's the only line in the book where like I consciously knew. Well, that isn't exactly what he said. Like, and and I'm and I'm I'm doing the funniest version of what he said. You know, I'm, I'm, everything else is like, that happened and that happened and that's pretty much what you said and I'm not changing it. And, you know, but like that one is like, oh, I know that there's no way I can remember exactly what you said. I know that you said something like that. So that's the funniest version of that. Well, that's the most cutting. And one of the, one of the most exciting things about kind of cracking open that book, which I did in, in an audio sense, is the idea that is the, my kind of dawning realisation that whilst not being an autobiography it is roughly chronological and yeah. details a lot of your life. And there's a, in, so far I've got into it, there's a bit of your relationship with your dad through the juggling story, yeah. you know, and, and there are, like, it seems like an incredible way to write a book to have had a wealth of material that was A, true to begin with, and B, then you talked about it and were grilled on it by funny friends, and that was recorded. <laughs> and then you could <laughs> assemble and do this piece of kind of collaging of then winding and, you know, finding a, a narrative through it. Now, I've not got to the end of it. I'm not suggesting there's a big revelation at the yeah, end. Yeah. I didn't get to it in time, which sure. I'm sorry to say. But, no um, I mean, what a fun way to write a book. Yeah, it was really... And it wasn't... I mean, it was Richard Roper, who's the... Uh, well, it's a headline. It was his idea. I, I, I had a meeting with him, and I was like, I'm wasting this guy's time. I've got no ideas for books. I think I remember what you I saying doing? this. Yeah, yeah. right. Oh, it was in Edinburgh. So we would have, we, I was probably living with you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm about to waste a guy's, you know, an hour of this guy's life because I've got no ideas for books whatsoever. And then you sit down and he goes, I'd like to write a book about the scrapes. And you go, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, of course, great. Of course, it'd be so, so easy to write, write, write those stories. Um, so it was fun writing it. And also what was nice was the, like, accidental autobiog- autobiography kind of like, you know, as, as you're right. Because I, I thought I'd just put them all in order because I didn't know what other order to tell them in really. Some of them are tangents that you know happen out of order but when you're writing it like that and then you see opportunities for callbacks to other stories and and also you notice patterns that you didn't notice before in your life so I realized that I had a phobia of singing which I didn't no no sorry I realized why I had a phobia of singing which I hadn't really thought about before I know that I singing in front of people really scares me and um I've never really thought about it much and then like 
there's like a whole bunch of stories, which are like me in the school play, freezing up and not being able to sing when I'm a little kid. And then like uh, me singing, singing the song in class over and over again, like uh, in, in secondary school and then really hating doing it and feeling really self-conscious. Oh, about the, doing it. the Humpty. Yeah, yeah about Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> and then like, uh, and then yeah, and then, and then, I, then I try and go to a karaoke night at one point to, to sing on my own. Uh, and it, you don't realise how much of a big deal it is until you kind of like, you go back over and go, oh, I've kind of like, and like the, the big one, which the publisher noticed and not me when I sent him the first draft was that I have a, yeah, you know, I have many near death experiences in the book, but after the first one, where I actually have a bit of an existential crisis and for six months I'm kind of not all right after it, um, all of the scrapes that happen within those six months are me hanging out with elderly people. And I hadn't noticed any of that. And I'm really, I'm having this huge thing where I'm really scared of dying and then I'm just surrounding myself. <laughs> with the elderly um and like he, he messaged me going have you noticed that this is what has happened like during this period of the book where you're afraid of dying every single story is about you hanging out with old people and you i just hadn't noticed totally columboed yourself yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> i hadn't even noticed it so that was a really that was why it was fun to write was because like you'd notice those patterns that in your own life that you wouldn't have noticed if you didn't have to kind of like sit down and write everything out So this is James, and before we get back into the second part of this first of two parters that are sort of three parters with James, uh, here is the full list of all of the tour dates, including now the London tour dates for Like I Mean It, my stand-up show that's going on tour from the beginning of February this year, 2018. Happy New Year to you, incidentally. I've uh, not even said that previously. You might be able to hear in the background uh, the Boutros wailing with the injustice of being sent to bed. Um, not sent to bed, just put in bed. It's his bedtime. It's not that anything wrong. Now, uh, uh, tour time it is. Uh, so these, these are all the dates. I'm gonna, I've been kind of mentioning a few of them as we go. This is the full list, now including London dates and uh, one or two others that have been added. So on the 10th of February, I'm at the Criterion in Leicester. That show is free or pay what you want, although it did sell out last year. So I think you can uh, book a place in advance for a fiver via the website. Uh, the 14th of February, Norden Farm in Maidenhead. The 17th of February, the Hawth in Crawley. That was a sellout last time. Can't wait to go back there. Fruit in Hull on the 21st of February. The 22nd is Hot Water Comedy in Liverpool. Very excited about that. Lovely room in Liverpool. Hope lots of people come along to that one. The Breadshed in Manchester on the 23rd of February. And on the 27th of February, the Fire Station in Oxford. Then in March, the 1st, I'm at Whelan's, back at Whelan's in Dublin. Fabulous venue. Nottingham Glee for the first time on the 18th. The 27th of April, I'll be at South Street Arts Centre in Reading. The 28th of April, I'll be in Corsham at the Pound Arts Centre. Uh, then I will be at Mac Festival on the, well, on whenever it is. I'm not entirely sure what day I'm on even, but if you're going to be at the Secret Welsh Festival, you can see me there. The Hen and Chickens in Bristol on the 11th of May. Bath, the Rondo Theatre on the 12th of May. 16th of May, I'm at Epic Studios in Norwich. Never been there before. Can't wait. Last time I gigged in Norwich, it was brilliant. So I'm looking forward to that. I uh, hope we get the Norwich Massive out for that one. The Royal and Derngate in Northampton. Again, that was a sellout last time uh, on the 18th of May. 19th of May, Warwick Arts Centre in Coventry. It's not in Warwick, it's in Coventry. Uh, Henry Tudor House in Shrewsbury. That Shrewsbury, I say, I say Shrewsbury automatically because I'm a hero, but I think even people in Shrewsbury call it Shrewsbury. Uh, that's on the 20th of April at Henry Tudor House. Again, last time that was a sellout. Uh, Swindon Arts Centre on the 23rd. The 26th of May, Farnham. I'm at the Maltings in Farnham, which is a brilliant venue. Back at the Westie on the 30th of May in Aldershot, the West End Centre. And that has been a sellout the last two times. So please get in quick for that. 
Um, always love playing that wonderful venue. The Lescar in Sheffield, again, it's a, I mean, that was a sellout, but to be fair, it is a small room. <laughs> but uh, I'll be there on the 1st of June. 2nd of June, the basement in York. That's new to me. Uh, the 3rd of June, the stand in Newcastle. Loads of fun last time. The Duke Studios in Leeds on the 4th of June. The 8th of June, I'm at Hangar Farm in Southampton. Uh, the Junction in Cambridge, which last time blew me away. That's the 9th of June uh, this time. Last time I played in Cambridge, it was the first time I'd ever done a show there and completely stuffed the place. So very excited to be back. The Monkey Barrel in Edinburgh on the 12th of June. 13th of June, the Stand in Glasgow. The 15th of June, I'm at the Birmingham Glee, which was lovely and full last time. Uh, Brighton Comedia on the 17th of June. And then I'm very pleased to announce I'm going to be back at the Soho Theatre in London on the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of June, which would ordinarily be Glastonbury weekend, except it isn't Glastonbury weekend. So that has put paid to my plans to take my family somewhere other than Glastonbury, as we always go. But uh, instead, I'll be taking them to glittering London for that run at the Soho Theatre. Then the Tringe Festival will be on sale soon. That's on the 29th of June. And then the tour concludes on the 30th of June. That's so far away at Chapter Arts Centre in Cardiff. Also a sellout last time. So if you would like to come along to those, you can go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour for all of your information on all of those. And thank you, everybody, for your very lovely messages about the new album. I gave away, you might recall, over Christmas, I gave away a 1,000 of my, my album from last year's tour, which is called Compared to What? I gave away a 1,000 of them. I put it on the podcast feed, and the first 1,000 subscribers who logged in, who turned their devices on, I've no idea how it works, but uh, a 1,000 of you, got actually 999 of you, got them and uh, got got the album and I got one <laughs> I received my own album free because of course I'm subscribed to the podcast myself purely to examine the end user experience um, but lots of you got in touch to say nice things about it which was very gratifying I would love to give away all of my albums free all the time because the reaction I get from people is so just lovely and heartwarming and people get in touch on Twitter and on email and via the Facebook group everyone gets in touch to to tell me how thrilled they are to have got a free thing I'd love to give it all away free, um, but I also need to buy bread and cheese and washing powder and other non-luxury items, so I, ha- I have to ask you for money. But you can buy that album uh, for not very much money right now at comedianscomedian.bandcamp.com. That's comedianscomedian.bandcamp.com. That's now available for a fiver, and I think you can even pay more if you're an absolute hero. So thank you to everyone that uh, got in touch with me about that, everyone that then went and purchased one if they missed out Um, and thank you to the donors over the Christmas period which included but are not limited to Richard, Adrian, Dave, Stephen, Mark, Christian, Harry, Ian, who, I love saying that, H-U-W, who, Martin, Bethany and Roxanne and I've not saved the two female donors for the end deliberately that all is just chronologically how they came in so thank you to all of you if you would like to join them in supporting this show this podcast and feeling wonderful as a result of doing so you can do that with a, a recurring subscription or a one-off payment at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate that's everything for now let's get back to part technically two of five if you were to download the extras as well of this conversation with james acaster if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That, that idea of, and, and I mean, and that's reflected as well, I guess, in the nature of your, your Netflix specials. Mm. Is there, is there a, a group title for all four of them together repertoire of course it is sorry yeah right <laughs> um okay so that though they are similarly kind of magnum opus style you know they they're dense and it's not just that it's that the story is dense obviously the part of the the weight of those shows is brilliant stand-up comedy about minutiae of daily life and all, um, as we talked in when you first on this podcast things that are particularly James Acastery you know you one of your great skills is the clarity of your voice and the clarity of the selection of what things there to talk about that seem that, that makes sense for you to talk about and we talked before about you you know when you snag a thing and you're like and I, I've been meaning to say for you for a while every so often I will write a subject and I'll be rubbing my hands going, oh, oh, James, I'd love this. <laughs> I've got a bit in my last show about, in my most recent show, about the bit when someone closes a corpse's eyes. Yeah, and I'm oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I did like that bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I know I'm on the right track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, James would be jealous of yeah. that. It's very satisfying things, experience. Things that uh, you'd see in a film, like that, because that's what, why I like that kind of stuff, yeah. that kind of observation, because I've never seen it in real life. Yeah. But, like, I've only seen it in TV and films. And I, I think I that like... was the first thing of mine that you said was the next snapping bit. Yeah. I remember you saying, oh, yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's thinking of a snapping bit was next. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like, I like things like that that are, like, um, probably no one in the audience has ever done in real life, but we've all seen it. So it's got that... Uh, Kind of yeah, what's, I don't know, there's a feeling attached to that kind of stuff where like it's a almost a shared experience without any of us having experienced. Yes, it, and I quite, it is. I quite like it. I've not said this word out loud for a long time, but it's kind of liminal. Right. It's a liminal experience. It's a yes. threshold. Yeah. It's like beyond. It's in our experience, but it's not in our experience. Yeah. It's sort of somewhere in that kind of nether world it's in between that them. Fantasy. Yeah, uh, yeah. I like that kind of stuff. Yeah. And and so those those your shows are populated with those sorts of things, and yet also they are populated with a similarly i'm gonna say it again liminal you know yeah. this this idea of the the narrative stretching through between them about a clearly untrue narrative of mm. being an undercover cop being a witness protection doing jury duty and each one of those represents a and and they they sort of they they uh, uh travel they arc throughout all four shows and um each one of them has a narrative quality which 
represents the actual subject matter of the show. So at what point during the writing do you realise or do you plan or do you look back at it afterwards and go, well, I've drafted this and actually it's all about this? Yeah. Talk to me about one of those. Is there a particular example? Because I feel like I'm getting woolly there talking about a lot of things. So to try and pin it to a specific one, can you talk about the arc of one of those shows and what it reflected and at what point that came about? Yeah, so uh, Recognise, which is the first one, uh, is about me being an undercover cop infiltrating a gang of uh, drug dealers who are dealing choice of stand-up comedians, and that's why I'm pretending to be a stand-up comedian, and my real name's Pat Springleaf. So that's the that's the arc of the show, and my wife leaves me during... And so, yeah, I was talking about my wife left me because of the... I was getting too obsessed with the case, and um, and then like I feel uh, like the listener at home now could be scribbling down. We'll give you a pause to try and work out what was going on in James's life. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and then um, uh, and then yeah, kind of like the character has a bit of a a bit of a wobble, a bit of you know, uh, the Pat Spring the character has a bit of a wobble and kind of goes to the seaside and has a mini breakdown uh, on his own, and. Um, what, so yeah, and, and the show is about you know my girlfriend had broken up with me that year, and uh, on towards the end of the relationship and after the relationship, I was uh, obsessed. I was convinced it was my fault that we were breaking up, and that uh, I was quite insecure about myself and looking at who I. So I became a bit unsure as who I, who I was. I had a bit of an identity crisis. And um, for you know, you just pretend to be someone else all the time, you know, to please people, and and you you, you never just be yourself, and you're always pretending to be somebody else. So um, so that's you know how the you know, obviously there's the actual literal breakup in the show that lets me talk about uh, you know how it felt to go through an actual breakup, but also the character uh, constantly pretending to be someone that he's not, like you know, obviously he's undercover, so he's always got a different identity and his, and his wife tells him that she doesn't feel like she knows him anymore and and uh and that he's not he, he doesn't know who he is either so there's, there's that um that came in quite late that was like because that was the first one of the three uh or the four now but like uh before so the year before i'd done the show that i was writing when i was last on this and it was just you know stand-up show and just loads of routines and it had this huge thing about Yoko Ono in it um, but it wasn't uh, themed really it was still me doing stand-up just to, just to interject I listened back to that episode recently yeah. and part of me wants to tell everyone never to listen to it again because it was very early in the life of me being an interviewer and a oh, podcaster really? in the first 20 minutes I am fucking all over the shop but equally but this, this to... programme is about progress so uh, but what's fascinating is hearing you talk about the right in the moment development of the Mariachi bit, which mm. then became a signature bit, a big part of that show. Uh, you know, so yeah, sorry, just, just to go on. I think it's really, if you, I would just say to the listener, if you haven't listened to part one of this yet, and I'm sure you have, then it's really worth revisiting right. before you, you know. Yeah, well, it, it was, I mean, that was the most stressful show I've ever written as well. And I definitely didn't say that on the podcast last time because I think I was in front of an audience and uh, 
yeah, you, you dealt with that incredibly well, but, uh, and I never again I did that have. structure of making someone do twenty minutes of stuff oh, and then interviewing oh, them. Oh, that never happened again. It never happened again. Fuck's <laughs> sake! <laughs> Afterwards, I thought <laughs> just me. I thought that went the best. James handled that as funnily and graciously as I could imagine anyone doing that. I could never put that much more pressure on someone again. <laughs> well, glad to be the only one. But uh, I. I put too much pressure on myself with that show and I didn't enjoy writing it and then I didn't enjoy performing it and I thought I never want to do that again. I never want to not enjoy doing a show. So um, for Recognise, I just started writing about... I wasn't even writing. It's the first time I I stopped writing stuff. So I stopped sitting down and... I used to sit down at a computer and write it out and be really obsessed with everything and then recognise that I'm not writing anything down anymore. And I was just going on stage and uh, I just have, you know, bullet points of subjects that I wanted to talk about and I would just talk about them and it was all about me enjoying it and having fun and not ever stressing myself out like I'd done with the previous show. So I just wanted to talk about being an undercover cop and say I was an undercover cop on stage and I didn't know why I wanted to do that. I was going through all this stuff of, you know, not knowing who I was and questioning who I was, but I didn't put two and two together at all. I was just, you know, enjoyed going on stage and saying that, you know, I'm an undercover cop and knowing that, you know, everyone knows this isn't true. It's a bit of a laugh and just doing that. And then, you know, writing routines that were uh, little observational bits or whatever that weren't about, weren't even about being an undercover cop. I was, you know, working them into his life. So talking about um, uh, the Google logo uh, and uh, talking about um, what were some of the other things. I can't remember any of the routines on that show now. Um, Bit, turning down a free banana in Pret a Manger and stuff like that, uh, and it was all just a bunch of stuff that I, I was like, okay, the, the arc is just me being an undercover cop, and that'll be the show. And then in May, I've, I think it was May, I, I, I was probably chatting to Nish Kumar about it, and um, I was saying, I'm thinking that I should maybe mention the breakup in it because I'm now talking about him going for a breakup and I'm talking about him not knowing who he is and uh, that seems seems to all tie in and I think I might be talking about this already without knowing it and it's all in my subconscious and I'm just naturally working out my issues on stage without meaning to and uh, decided to put it in there and try and like address that but I was still addressing it as spring leaf so I, was, I still wasn't being coming out of it and saying this has actually happened to me. But I was, I was when I started writing more stuff about his marriage breaking up and and trying to... But I was consciously talking about my own experience within that, but not letting the audience know. Um, and then I remember... So this was definitely a conversation with Nish, but being in Melbourne with Nish, doing our shows... We're doing our old shows, but working on our new ones. And we're talking a lot about our new ones because we weren't enjoying doing our old ones and it was making us feel better to focus on something we could work on and um him saying to me you've got to tell them what the show's about and and why you're because he said it's you kind of that they they're owed that by the end that that they need to know why they've listened to you say you're an undercover cop for an hour um and you've got to let them in and just just tell them this is this is why I'm doing this and this is what this is about. Because pre- previously, before you'd made those connections and deepened the material, it could have simply been I'm an undercover cop and you, you wouldn't have owed them an explanation. Yeah, I wouldn't have. And uh, and it kind of would have been fine. And it would have been It silly. would have been a silly idea. Yeah. That you... If I didn't realise it, it would have been okay and whatever. But like, yeah, when I kind of 
knew what the show was. And also, I think when you yourself know what the show is about and that improves the show for you, then you should improve it for the audience as well and tell them, because I think it makes it more fun and makes you look back at it and go, okay, so that was all, you know. And people will never, I never expect people to notice this, but like all the routines in that show are about, um, you know, people not quite knowing who they are but, and stuff like that. There's loads of like, it, well, not probably every single routine, but most of the routines in that show are about that. And like, you know, me being told I'm too good for a free banana and then like fighting against that and not wanting to be, you know, and being like, well, no, I am too. And it's all about me wrestling with who I am, even though it's stupid and silly. And so, like, I felt like they owed the explanation at the end. And, that, you know, this is what it was. Cause, and then what was fun about that, because it was accidental, and it was at the end that you tell them what the show was about. Whereas all shows, most shows I'd seen in the past, that starts with telling them. <laughs> this is what this show is yeah, about. Yeah, so you kind yeah. of go out and go, you know, this is my show about whatever, uh, you know, and uh, then you do the material about it. And um, I, I quite liked just having that as a reveal instead because it meant that I didn't have to have a conclusion either. I, I always felt like I I can't uh, say at the end, and, you know, this is what I've learned from it and this is how I'm now, you know, more secure in myself and who I am because I... Well, that's bullshit and also like you know I haven't got any answers for anyone all I've got is my shared experience that my experience that I hope they've you know if they've had it as well mm. then they can relate to it and that's that was also the you know the reason for putting it in there was because I felt like I what I had to say about going through a breakup um a lot of people go through and probably maybe don't hear in a stand-up show as much you know um you know you, we often talk about how you know sad it is and how lonely you feel but like I didn't think I, I'd really heard people talk about how needy you get at the end of a relationship and insecure in yourself and things like that uh maybe hadn't heard that as much but that's just the shows I've seen um so like yeah I also for the first time was like I'm gonna do something that's a little bit personal whereas I, I almost exclusively not done that before just like, I'm never letting them in um although it did come in in the previous show but during Edinburgh, so I never told the audience what it was about. But there was a, a bit at the end of the previous show where I... It's a very ridiculous scene where I ended up on the Titanic with Yoko Ono and the ship sinks and she's floating on a door and I'm in the water and we're talking to each other and we end up having an argument during it. And um, during Edinburgh, because, you know, the same breakup that I'd had that informed recognised had just happened before the Yoko Ono show. And so that argument became lines from my arguments I'd had with my ex-girlfriend and uh I didn't let the audience in on that uh and one of my friends came to see it and she cried during that bit because she knew it was stuff that my, that, that uh, my ex-girlfriend had said to me um but that was my first bit of doing that I've kind of consciously going this is something actually quite personal to me but I'm not telling the audience that but I'm weaving it in with the fiction and uh I felt a lot more comfortable doing that with them and not, rather than going on stage and just saying this thing has happened and talking about it. So like, but I, but, but I still didn't deliberately set off to do that with Recognise. And then Represent was the same. I didn't deliberately do it. I, I thought I'm just going to write, uh, I was going to try not to replicate the previous show because I'd really, Recognise I'd really, really enjoyed it. I felt like it was a big step forward for me in terms of, you know, finding my voice and being a comic. And I didn't want to then just try and do it again because I thought that was futile. So then I, but then I just naturally, you know, one of the subjects I wanted to talk about was jury service. 
and I kind of thought I want to talk about that so much that I'll just make that the, the arc again but but again I didn't know what that was about until I was in Melbourne and then realised well first of all I realised that every single routine was about doubt and certainty and so I thought that was what the show was about uh, and that jury service is the natural metaphor for that you know, trying to make your mind up and not knowing what you think about something not knowing your opinion and not being confident in your opinion and uh, that made me have to go okay so why am I not why do I have such a hard time nailing my colours to the mast all the time and going oh it's 100% because of my Christian upbringing and because I lost my faith and so now I've never felt sure about stuff because I had to kind of have this point in my life where I was like I actually don't know if this is true and so I can't believe in it anymore and then that's meant that I never kind of fully go yeah that's what I think or that's what I believe or yeah this is a fact I'm always like assuming that I'm probably wrong and people can talk me out of this you know and so realize but again that was late on realizing the show was about that had you already named the characters in the show by the time you realized yes really yeah so the I mean it's spoiler alert <laughs> but let's assume everyone listening to this yeah, yeah, yeah. is an, an accompaniment but the characters in that show were all named after uh, disciples uh yeah yeah there, there was yeah there was a lot so of you had, the names have you changed had, a bit now but they okay at, at the time they definitely and you had unknowingly yeah given them all biblical names yeah. before you realized that the show was about your loss of faith <laughs> yeah yeah fucking hell <laughs> yeah well, I think it was you pointed it out to me I think I think it was you who said are these all deliberately I, I would love to take credit for that I but don't like, know so that I, I well did. I think you're the only person I've had that conversation with before I think okay just, but oh, like man. yeah but uh, yeah, they were all named already, and like you know, whole routine about a Christingle service in church, and I didn't realise that you know, yeah, you just don't. So, so what is this this thing that whereby you're writing on one track, and then you're writing about a thing that's important to you? Yeah. Is it that the thing is? It, it's clearly not a coincidence. Is it that you are making decisions unknowingly, which then reveal a thing to you? Is it that you are particularly adept at recognising what's going on or that you're open to it when other people, when Nish or whoever says, is that what's going on there? Mm. I mean, that seems like it's such a different way round to work than I think most people work. Like, that's how I try and write a show is I try and write all the stuff. Here's everything that's on my mind in, in the most recent shows I've done. Mm. Here's all the stuff that's on my mind. And then I go, oh, this show's about being angry. Yes. Oh, because I've been angry all the time. And there's yeah. no routines about being angry. But I was probably trying to write a routine about being angry that didn't work. Yeah. And then it kind of comes together. But with nothing like the the depth and the complexity that you have in your work. So what what is that? Before I ask, I don't know if that's an answerable question. I don't even no, know if it's a question. Yeah, yeah. What 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 is going well, on? I, I with, think, but is it that you're, the writing is trying to come out of you? I think it's a mixture of things. So I think one of the things is that you are subconsciously, you know, we we are, we are all we are, this is a deep thing. It's not deep. This is, I'm saying it uh, <laughs> as a joke. Uh, but like we are all living a life. So like you're you're constantly, you know, doing whoever you are. Your your year because normally you know in this country we write shows in a year, and there are running, you know, you've got running themes in your life for a year that, and things that are happening to you. And so if you're writing a bunch of material uh, for stand up and you know, and basing it on what you want to talk about rather than 
what you think the audience wants to hear or something and you're, and you're just writing based on what you feel like talking about on stage you're kind of naturally going to subconsciously write about whatever it is you've been feeling all year and the overriding thing you've been uh feeling even if you haven't acknowledged that to yourself but like you know it's all it's all going to tie together but also i think there's an element of uh almost like a fan theorist of someone else's work just looking back at what you've done and making sense of it even if it's not you know i, I really love watching fan theory videos on youtube about films and stuff but i know they're not right a lot yeah. of the time a lot yeah. of the time they've seen someone else's film and they've gone oh what it's really about is this and it's like and it kind of makes sense sometimes or, or they make a complete they go you know uh, Chewbacca is like a is actually a Sith Lord, uh, <laughs> and, and, and if you watch all the films, it makes sense. Although you know, as a as a viewer, you know, well, he's definitely not. This is what we've established here is that humans love patterns and we love making meanings yeah. out of things, and often that meaning that the person is making reveals more about the the viewer. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're both the viewer and the person who created it, it's quite it's even easier to do. So you kind of you know, I think with those shows, you look back and. You know, there are a number of running themes uh, in those shows that maybe I could have honed in on and gone, oh, it's about this or it's about... But, like... Okay. Um, but a lot of the time, it's just the one that feels... Like, definitely with Represent, I went through a whole bunch of them where I started trying to figure out what the show was about during Melbourne. So I was like, this is just, you know, not hanging together as well as the last one did. So, you know, whereas the last one I'd stumbled across, oh, this is what it's about, but with Represent, I'll just start going, okay, what's this about now? You've got to try and figure it out. And there's also a danger whereby you're analysing a thing that is currently happening. Yeah. And you go, what, what is going on? Well, maybe it's not time yet to find out what's yeah. going on because I haven't quite worked it out, yeah. but there are financial imperatives or kind of, you know, well, industrial I, imperatives. Because I originally thought the show was about judgment and judging people. And uh, Yes, and I remember that phase. what I thought it was about. So, like, I made the show about that and it kind of felt a bit too negative and a bit like I was, I didn't really have much to say on it. And, you know, I didn't really, it didn't really work. Um, and then, but there were enough routines where it's like, oh, it's in there, you know, judgment isn't in there all the way through. And then realise it's not judgment, it's doubt and certainty because it's, you know, you are judging all these things, but you're not very confident in your opinion. So, and then making that step and go, but I still had to kind of like, still going back over it and, almost bending it to make sense as well and then you're able to change it a bit more afterwards but uh yeah it's kind of it's kind of taking yourself out of it and and almost uh doing a fan theory on your own on your own thing which is how like all the you know all four shows tying together was exactly like that mm. um but with reset it was the only one where i knew everything at the beginning when i started to write it so i was like this is it's going to be about me going into witness protection and that is because every time I'm not enjoying comedy, I want a fresh start in life. I want to go to Kenya and start again because I always feel like I should have done that. And I knew that immediately. That's um, interesting. And that's the first time, yeah, I kind of was like, okay, I, I, I know what it will be about. Because that the moment at the end of Reset where you put all of the... You make all of the subtext of the show textual and put it all onto a person sitting in the front row yeah maybe you did think this maybe you did maybe your dreams worked out like that and maybe that happened that i think is the that's my favorite moment of your body of work that bit is so good 
And weirdly, I was looking back at some reviews just earlier this morning, just mm. kind of re- which which bit did that appear in? Which which show was that material in? Yes. And a couple of the reviews were quite negative about that mm. bit. Yeah. And yeah. I, that really struck me because I, you know, we we all know my stance on reviews. Try yeah. not to read them; they're not for us. They're immaterial. But sure. you know, in in this, like, I hadn't read them at the time. I hadn't read any of them at the time. Yeah. But to kind of read that and go, whoa. What, yeah. what do you mean this bit doesn't sit so well? That's the whole fucking... That's yeah, the yeah. guts of that show. Well, like I said, with that show, um, it was the one where I didn't stop working on it. So by the time you saw it, which was May this year? Yeah, Mac. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like, which, which normally I'd refer to in secret, but apparently Nish Kumar thinks it's all right to talk about it on national radio. Oh, doesn't it? <laughs> Breaking all the rules, Madame Kumar. Um, so that's the one the way I, I kept... So in Edinburgh, that ending was not what you saw. So that, those reviews weren't reviewing the same thing. Oh, okay, okay. So uh, in Edinburgh, it was a version of that. It was me putting everything onto the person in the front row, but it went on for a lot longer. Um, I was almost over-explaining okay. what everything in the show meant. So I was trying to flag up the whole metaphor for every little bit because I'd realised that the honey, this whole routine about a honey scam that I had with one guy that we ran was a metaphor for the band that I was in. And so I was trying to really spell that out. I was repeating myself a lot. I didn't have the same final line. So I, I the, the, the final line was different and a bit more hit and miss. Uh, and then I continued to change it throughout Edinburgh. By the end of Edinburgh, it was better, but it wasn't. It still wasn't as strong an ending as I'd had on the previous two shows. And then on the tour, I kept changing it. But again, I'd say by the end, I was quite happy to not have to do that ending anymore. And then on this tour this year, doing the the, uh, the four shows on tour, uh, I because yeah, I was just a lot more ruthless with all the shows and go right that bit doesn't work, so fix it. And with that bit, I was like, you got to tighten it up and you got to change that final line to something that actually lands. And I did that, I think, in pretty early on in the tour, and then was like, I wish I'd done this a long time ago. But uh, yeah, it took me. I think that yeah, that it took, it took me a very long time to get it to where you saw it. Um, and, yeah, definitely those reviews were reviewing, were fairly reviewing a different bit, I'd say. Before we move on from the from these shows into some other stuff I want to talk about, um, I, I want to talk to you about your relationship with critics mm-hmm. and your relationship with... Uh, nope, just critics, just with the yeah. industry, with awards judges. Sure. With that whole thing, because you are uniquely amongst UK comics, you're the only person to have been nominated for Best Show five years in a row. Mm -hmm. And I would like to know how you are with that now. Mm -hmm. Whether that, now that that's done, do you feel better for it being done? Um, Yeah, well, it's weird, because all I ever felt each time was happy... uh, that I've been nominated. So I never felt pressure to win. Actually, no, that's, that's, that's bullshit. The third time I felt a bit of pressure to win. Uh, and then when I didn't, I felt annoyed at myself for being disappointed um, because I'd let it matter and spoil the fun of this. Because that was for Recognise, which was this show that the whole point was have fun. And I'd really have fun. And then at the end, I'd let myself care and that was annoying. I was like, why, why, why did you do... Yeah, you're not supposed to care about this. And then after that, yeah, I never expected to get a fourth one, and I certainly didn't expect to get a fifth one. And 
both of those were just nice surprises and I didn't expect to win. You know, the fifth one, at the awards, I was drunk still with Nish. Like, we'd been out for his birthday and we were still hammered and I had my coat on. And if, I'd be, if my name had been called up, it would have been a disaster. Like, I just didn't expect to... You just, you know, you're just there for... Going, oh, this is a nice bit of fun at the end of Edinburgh. It's just a knockabout and, you know, it, it doesn't matter either way. Um, and I've always... You know, apart from that third year, I've always genuinely felt like that. Um, and... In terms of it being done, that I'd say, uh, yeah, you do. You, do, you definitely feel like going this year. So I went to do the old shows this year. I did the, the three different shows this year for the whole month, and um, it was really nice that no one was reviewing me, and that I knew there wasn't any awards pressure. So it was definitely nicer. But at the same time, and I spoke to some other people about this. You feel weirdly left out of everything because uh, that conversation, you're not a part of it anymore. Um, you know, no, well, as far as you know, but like, yeah, you, 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 people aren't, which people certainly aren't talking about you when they're talking about, you know, who's going to get nominated this year or whatever. And people aren't talking about you when they say they've read a good review in something. And, you know, you're it's not, like you've graduated now. Yeah. And, and it definitely feels better. The whole thing is better, but you have to... I'm a big fan of just acknowledging when I feel things that, are, that don't make any sense and are silly. And, uh, you know, well, I think it's absolutely pointless to feel left out of everything and, and what a ridiculous thing... But you can't help it. You go, yeah, I, I definitely... I'm taking the next Edinburgh off. And it's mainly just because... Um, one of the things I felt this year was like, OK, you need a proper divider now between, like... Like, if you have graduated from all that stuff, you need some time off because you don't feel like... You still feel like you should be, mm. you know... I didn't feel like I graduated. I felt like I was... Technically, I graduated. I was still hanging out in the sixth form common room and, like, still there and being like, you guys still think I'm cool, right? And going, like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you shouldn't really be here. Uh, do so you know like, the song Silver Street by Ben, ben Folds? Oh, I heard oh okay, that's fine. That's it's exactly what that's about. Yeah, oh, <laughs> someone to it. someone hanging on too Since long. Home, not yeah, not that yeah, you yeah. did that, but that that no, not no. wanting to be that guy. Yeah, but like you kind of felt, even though obviously you know I'm going to continue to go to Edinburgh and do shows there, but uh, yeah, but not be part of that discussion. You know, I, I needed I needed a year in between where I could have the because it's been so intense whether I like it or not each year. You know, in. Yeah, it was last year when I turned up and, like, the front page of the list was a picture of me with maybe this year written across it in big letters. And that was... And, then, yeah, and I, was, I was like, oh, well, this is... You've, you've ruined my Edinburgh on day one. Like, you know... And um, you, you just have to kind of deal with that weird... I don't know, weird expectation where you kind, of, you kind of want to argue against it immediately. I remember seeing that front cover and being like, I've been nominated four times, leave me alone. Like, mm. is that not enough? Like, what would you mean maybe this year? That just be like, can't it be, be like he doesn't need to prove himself anymore? It's fine. But like, it's not apparently. I've got to still do another one. It's like, do it again. It's like, why? No one's done it again. No one's ever done it five times. Why, why do you expect me to do it five times? And, and it was like quite an annoying thing uh, initially. And then like, actually what, what got all that out of my head and what made me enjoy the month was working on the show all the time and kind of so not not playing into that stuff of going right now 
apparently I've got to get nominated, so I better do the same show every day and do this really rigid, you know, and it wasn't, it's, it's instead being like, I've got nothing to prove to these people, it doesn't matter what the list think, so I'm just going to work on the show and change it, and if they're, if a reviewer or a panellist is in on the night where I've changed it for the worst and it's fucked up, then it doesn't matter, and that's how I enjoyed the month a lot more. Um, but I'm certainly glad to not not be turning up to Edinburgh and seeing that kind of stuff anymore. And that hopefully that I mean I, I assume they'll never be able to do it again. So like you know it'll be well they're, they're not going to be able to do it again. So I'm going <laughs> to deliberately go out of my way to make sure they can't. <laughs> So that's the first hour and a bit. Episode two is coming your way, I think, within the week, uh, in which we'll be talking about... What do we talk about? We talk about the clarity of James's comic voice. Uh, we discuss the number of audiences he's called the worst ever. Uh, and we find out who one of his favourite comics is on the circuit right now. Don't worry, it isn't you. And we also talk about why he no longer sits down to write. And then once that's live, you can access a further 45 minutes of extra material at comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras. That probably won't be available until the second one comes out, but there it is. It'll be up there with all the other extras from the Dara O'Brien one, the Jimmy Carr one, and uh, all of the other ones. So, uh, all, not all of the other ones for which there were extras. And in that one, in the extras bit, we're going to talk about uh, James's relationship with criticism, more on that. Um, and we will talk about uh, how he feels uh, about his style having, shall we say, inspired lots of newer acts. That's something I bring up with him. He doesn't raise that himself, but we do talk about that. We talk about fear, forgiveness and guilt. And I also remind James of a very useful piece of advice that he once gave me. So that is all that. The logger for this episode was Ryan Coles. Thank you, Ryan. The editor was Nathan Wood. And also thank you to James Hardacre and the Stewart Brewery in Edinburgh for some festive freebies. Uh, James and the people at the Stewart Brewery were very kind and sent me a box of booze. And some of it was very nice. I'm not an ale drinker, really. And even an IPA, I find a, on my first sip, I, I get a headache immediately. <laughs> but having said that, there was one... Uh, there was one in particular, uh, Skeleton Gang Crew? Skeleton Crew would have made more sense. I can't remember. I'll find out. But it was really good. So uh, I heartily recommend those from at least that one I recommend from a position of having enjoyed it. The others, I'm sure they're nice. I did try them and I, I tried some, uh, some of my friends tried them as well. Um, but anyway, that was the sort of freebie whereby uh, people send me stuff and I try and... I, I'm not reviewing it. I'm just saying thank you. And one of them in particular was delicious. Is that fair? <laughs> I didn't know what it was going to be. I thought it might be like lager. But no, obviously a brewery is going to give you some very pungent real ales. The sort of ales that... Yeah, I mean, there are other... There's a, a, another podcast dear to this one. Very much fans of ale. I, I mean, I don't want to start any sort of uh, pointless rivalry here in which I would no doubt come off worst. But uh, I, I've tried to get into ale. And I just can't get into it. You know those... Um, do uh, you remember the Hobgoblin ones with the adverts of uh, that little kind of... Well, it was a Hobgoblin, wasn't he? Going, oh, flavour too much for your lager boy. And I'd always think, yes, it is. It really is. It's, it's, I'm, I like something weaker, please. More tasteless. But um, nonetheless, thanks to everyone at the Stuart Brewery in Edinburgh. And uh, I will try and at least go there. Or, uh, I mean, the artwork on the cans was great. Anyway, <laughs> I feel like that's damning with faint praise. The one I had was lovely. Anyway, uh, finally, the results of the haiku competition. The, this is to win the book of haikus by Gordon Gordon. It's a very funny uh, book of very funny haikus. And you had to complete a haiku which started Father Christmas side. Um, and uh, uh, several of you, <laughs> many of you, several? More than ten, so it's more than several, isn't it? Um, a bunch of you got in touch. 
And that's the thing. You've got to remember with uh, small DIY shows such as this, if there is a competition, you might as well enter because there might not be that many entries. But uh, there were very funny ones. There were over, in, in fact, over 10 of you submitted more than 20. That's the other way to do it is submit several in once. This is the winner. It was David Braziel um, for this haiku. Father Christmas sighed. Yes, Stu. Yes, I am happy. Now get off my knee. Come on. I mean, it's a blatant attempt to pander to the catchphrases of the podcast, but uh, it, it really made me laugh. So well done, David. You win a copy of the haiku book. Uh, Gordon Gordon will be getting in touch with you direct. Well done. No post amble today because I am on my honeymoon. And in fact, I am sitting in uh, an extraordinarily hot car uh, in an attempt to get away from the noise of the wee boy. Um, uh, carrying on so I'm doing this with no aircon for, <laughs> for sound purposes and uh, I'm absolutely sweltering so I'm going to get out of the car run around in a circle and uh, recover and then get back to my honeymoon look forward to the next episode of this coming out soon and thank you of course to James Acaster for coming on the show and thanks to you for listening I'll speak to you in the next bit in a day or two bye for now